Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. This episode features content from an educational webinar titled COVID-19 Outpatient Remdesivir Use and Therapeutic Updates. During this podcast, Professor Sharon Lewin, Director of the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity, Professor of Infectious Diseases at the University of Melbourne, and Consultant Infectious Disease Physician at Alfred Hospital and Royal Melbourne Hospital, all in Melbourne, Australia, discusses treatment principles in non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19, remdesivir use in adult and pediatric patients, and other therapeutic updates, including ivermectin data from the TOGETHER study. For more information about Professor Lewin and for a link to the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Professor Lewin has to say about treatment of non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19. I'm going to talk to you about the principles for use of antiviral agents in non-hospitalized patients. And I'm going to start with the recommendations from the NIH. I acknowledge that there are people on the call that may not be living in the US and therefore may have different country-specific recommendations as we do here in Australia. However, these are the recommendations from the NIH, and these are for non-hospitalised patients who have mild to moderate COVID-19 and are at high risk of progression to severe disease. And the agents that are recommended, listed in order of preference, are first nematrolvir and ritonavir or Paxlovid, which is recommended for people aged over 12 and weighing greater than 40 kilograms, and importantly used within five days of symptom onset, because that's how the clinical trials were conducted. There are a number of drug interactions that need to be considered with Paxlovid. There's renal dosing if the EGFR is less than 60 a half dose required, and it's worthwhile keeping in mind there is some HIV activity of ritonavir, so ideally people with HIV should be on other antiretroviral therapy. The second recommended agent for non-hospitalised patients is remdesivir. Dosing is determined by weight, so weight greater than 40 kilograms is 200 milligrams intravenously on day one, followed by 100 milligrams intravenously on days two and three and a weight-adjusted dosing for those less than 40 kilograms. And this is now recommended, and this is a change in the recommendations, and again, relevant to US sites only, may not be relevant to your, to your own country if you are not living in the US, and that is that the recommendation is now down to age 28 days and in infants weighing more than three kilograms. And the recommendations are to use within seven days of symptom onset, so a slightly longer window than for Paxlovid, and of course needs to be administered in a healthcare setting given it's intravenous. Now, it's important to note that unvaccinated patients are still likely to derive most benefit from these COVID-19 antiviral agents, and that all of these studies to date have been done in unvaccinated individuals. Clinical trials are still needed to determine the potential role of combination treatment with other antivirals or antivirals with monoclonal antibodies. And there really isn't the data currently to support combination therapy, although many of us might think this is going to be valuable given the principles of other viruses we treat, but the clinical trials for this have not yet been done. Now, there are some alternatives 
again listed by the NIH. These are listed alphabetically and really are, are mentioned because they're preferred therapies for high-risk non-hospitalised patients if the other agents are not feasible to administer nor clinically appropriate. And these are bebtilovimab, which is administered and recommended for individuals greater than the age of 12, weighing greater than 40 kilograms, used within seven days of symptom onset. Important to note that most of the data comes from in vitro studies of neutralization, and there really is limited data on hospitalization and mortality outcomes for this particular antibody. However, has become of high interest as it maintains activity against BA2. And we can talk more about the antibodies if there's questions at the end. The other antiviral agent that could be considered is molnupiravir. That's 800 milligrams for 200 milligram capsules orally every 12 hours for five days. As with Paxlovid is recommended for use within five days of symptom onset. It's important to note that molnupiravir had lower efficacy in clinical trials than either remdesivir or Paxlovid with an efficacy estimated at 30% in reducing hospitalization. And there should be caution if administering to people of childbearing potential and a clear guidance to not use in pregnant women. Regarding antibodies, so trovimab is really only recommended where BA2 is not the dominant subvariant as so trovimab does not have sufficient potency against BA2, and if none of the preferred alternative options is available. And finally, some countries, I know in my country in Australia, this is used, but in the NIH recommendations, inhaled budesonide for non-hospitalized patients is currently recommended in the US for use in the setting of a clinical trial only. Now, it's important to think through prioritizing patients. In some countries, there are limited supplies of either Paxlovid or Remdesivir, and therefore there is some prioritization for outpatients. These are what you might want to consider if there are supply constraints. Many countries have divided these priorities into four tiers. The highest tier, or tier one, who where population where antiviral treatment should be prioritized in the event of supply constraints. And that's immunocompromised individuals who are not expected to mount an adequate immune response to COVID vaccination or have an underlying specific condition regardless of vaccine status. And important to remind you that unvaccinated individuals at the highest risk of severe disease are anyone aged greater than 75 or anyone aged greater than 65 with additional risk factors. Priority group two includes unvaccinated individuals at risk of severe disease, not included in tier one. So that's anyone greater than 65 or anyone aged less than 65 with clinical risk factors. The third tier is vaccinated individuals at higher risk of severe disease. And I'll talk about that later. Anyone aged greater than 75 or greater than 65 with clinical risk factors. And the fourth tier would be vaccinated individuals at risk of severe disease, anyone greater than 65 or anyone less than 65 with clinical risk factors. Now, the NIH have also got a significant extensive documentation of what's considered conditions for increased risk of severe COVID-19. They are listed here. The list is extensive and it's worth looking at the actual link to identify those specifically at risk which goes into more detail than what we've listed here. But, and this is, list is just alphabetical. I won't read the list, it's there for your reference in the future. 
What about immunocompromising conditions that would make a person a higher priority for receipt of antivirals and to consider this when there are logistical supply constraints? And again, this is a very detailed list that comes from the COVID-19 treatment guidelines. And you can see here that there are certain immunosuppressive conditions that put people at much higher risk, such as B-cell depleting therapies, because you're unlikely to respond to a vaccine, T-cell modulating treatments such as CAR T-cells or post-stem cell transplant, immunological malignancies, solid organ transplants with including lung transplant recipients and people with severe combined immunodeficiencies and not all people with HIV infection. Again, this limit, this in the US guidelines, it's HIV who have a CD4 count of less than 50 who may have made a subactimal response to a vaccine. So let's go now a little bit into more detail on remdesivir use because we've had previous CCO meetings on oral antivirals. And I'm going to cover uh, two key clinical trials, one that was performed in adults and one that was formed in a paediatric population. So Pine Tree was a randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled phase three trial done at 64 sites in the United States as well as sites in Europe looking at remdesivir for unvaccinated, non-hospitalised, high-risk individuals with COVID-19 and participants who had symptoms before or less, symptoms who were diagnosed with COVID-19 by PCR less in four or fewer days before or had seven or fewer days of symptoms were randomised to receive remdesivir or placebo with the dosing that I mentioned earlier, a loading dose of 200 milligrams followed by 100 milligrams on the subsequent two days. And the efficacy endpoint, which looked at hospitalisation, showed that remdesivir reduced the risk of COVID-19 hospitalisation or death by 87% and medically attended visits or death by 81%. So a clear benefit in these high-risk individuals. Remdesivir was largely safe and well-tolerated, and the most common adverse events were nausea, headache, and diarrhoea. And these findings are published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, more recently, at the most recent CROI meeting in this year, the results of the paediatric trial of remdesivir were presented. And this study is called CARAVAN. It was an open-label, single-arm, phase 2-3 trial in hospitalised paediatric patients aged greater than 28 days to less than 18, weighing more than 3 kilograms, and with laboratory-confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection. And the cohort were randomised to receive either 200 milligram IV loading dose and then 100 milligram IV once a day or a dose adjusted regimen. And these are the, the details of how those dosage was determined and the numbers with each of the dosing cohorts. And you can see that the, that the numbers participating here is clearly sm far smaller than the larger efficacy trials previously reported in adults. And the primary outcomes here were treatment, emergent adverse events, laboratory abnormalities, and an understanding of remdesivir pharmacokinetics. And the secondary outcomes were antiviral activity and efficacy. And these are the findings amongst the five different cohorts of any adverse event, grade three adverse events, treatment-related grade, um, grade three adverse events. And you can see the details in this table. It should be noted that the most common 
grade three for laboratory abnormal events were a decrease in hemoglobin or a decrease in EGFR. And the most common adverse events were constipation and acute kidney injury. And 85% of patients demonstrated clinical improvement, 60% of patients were discharged by day 10 and 83% by day 30. So you can see the strength of the evidence is really very different in paediatric populations compared to adult populations. So the FDA approval for remdesivir is for adults, currently adult and paediatric patients, aged greater than 28 days and weighing more than three kilograms for a positive result of SARS-CoV-2 viral presence who are either hospitalized or non-hospitalized and have mild to moderate COVID-19 and are at high risk for progression to severe COVID-19, including hospitalization or death. I make the point that the pediatric evaluation in Caravan was in hospitalized pediatric patients. Important to note that these studies were in unvaccinated populations, in non-hospitalized patients, the treatment duration is for three days. The monitoring for hypersensitivity is important, which means that people should be observed for at least one hour post-infusion. And using remdesivir in pregnancy, use of remdesivir in pregnancy registry should be applied. Just to summarise, for non-hospitalised patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 who are at risk of progression to severe disease, consider these agents, Paxlovid, first up and followed by remdesivir which covers both children and adults, and also a wider window of seven days of symptom onset. Now, I'm just gonna to touch on a few other therapeutic updates. One particularly important study, I think, that has maybe put to rest and hopefully changed clinical practice globally. And that is the TOGETHER trial, which is a large network based in Brazil and South Africa, looking at ivermectin for non-hospitalized high-risk individuals with COVID-19. So TOGETHER is a really interesting adaptive platform trial that have also looked at other agents with success and great contribution. But this one was a randomised, placebo-controlled, adaptive platform trial in people with COVID-19 symptoms for less than or equal to seven days and at least one risk factor for COVID-19 progression who test positive for SARS-CoV-2. And 1,300 participants were randomised to receive ivermectin, 400 micrograms per kilogram orally per day for three days, all placebo. And the primary outcome was hospitalisation due to COVID-19 or an emergency department visit due to clinical worsening of COVID-19 within 28 days of randomisation. So the primary outcome is slightly different to some of the other studies we've discussed. And a range of secondary outcomes with safety endpoints, viral clearance, hospitalization for any cause, mortality, receipt of mechanical ventilation, or time to an event. And this is what they found. This is with an intention to treat analysis of ivermectin compared to placebo showed no benefit. The mean number of days with COVID symptoms were 3.8 days in the overall cohort. The use of ivermectin did not result in lower incidence of hospitalization or emerging department visits for COVID-19 in high-risk non-hospitalized patients. Subgroup analyses showed no difference in treatment effect when stratified by age, sex, BMI, presence of cardiovascular or pulmonary disease, smoking status, or time since symptom onset. 
So in summary, the key points that I've covered that is remdesivir is a treatment option for high-risk ambulatory patients that could be considered as second to Paxlovid, must be initiated within seven days of symptom onset and does require a healthcare facility for administration, which obviously reduces its widespread application. Um, remdesivir currently is the only direct-acting antiviral approved for paediatric patients aged less than 12. And ivermectin, as we've learned from the TOGETHER trial, is not recommended for the treatment of COVID-19 except in clinical trials. I'm very happy to take any questions from the audience. Wonderful. And thank you, Professor Lewin, for that excellent presentation. We have a number of questions from participants, even some that came in ahead of the presentation, and we'll do our best to answer as many as we can now. So the first question came to us from an attendee ahead of time who asks a big question. What is the current status of the four key antiviral therapeutics? So remdesivir, Paxlovid, Citrovimab, and Molnupiravir. What's the current status of those agents available in the market? All four agents are available in the U.S. and also other countries, including Australia. I can't comment for the particular country that the question arises from because I know this will vary around the world. All of them are available. The use of citrovimab is now limited with the widespread circulation of BA2 and citrovimab not having activity against BA2, which leaves the other three antiviral drugs which aren't influenced by the arrival of new variants of concern. And they include Paxlovid, intravenous remdesivir and um, molnupiravir. And just to recap on the recommendations from the US, which are actually quite similar to the recommendations in my own country, is that the preferred antiviral for people who are at high risk of developing severe disease, not everyone, is Paxlovid followed by intravenous remdesivir. And then if either of those are unsuitable for whatever reason, to consider an alternative agent such as an antibody or molnupiravir. Great. Thank you for that recap. That it's helpful to know, you know what's out there and, and even what differences there are between what's available in different countries. Another question is, we mentioned inhaled budesonide at the beginning of the presentation. Can you tell us more about your experience or the experience in Australia or other countries that you're aware of that are using inhaled budesonide and maybe what are some of the clinical pearls that we've learned from use of that agent in our patients with COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, the use of it is based on a large randomized clinical trial that looked at the use of inhaled budesonide. It was 800 micrograms BD, two puffs twice a day for 14 days and used within 14 days of symptoms, that particular trial, which is published, showed a reduced chance of hospitalisation and therefore a fairly non-toxic, easily available additional agent. I think it's interesting that budesonide did work in that setting because budesonide is not targeting the virus itself as the antiviral drugs I just mentioned, budesonide will be reducing any inflammatory response in response to SARS-CoV-2. And yet it, we tend to think of inflammation being a much more significant player in hospitalised patients who become extremely unwell. But even early in the course of, of um, disease, within the first 14 days of infection or the first 14 days of symptoms, there was benefit in reducing pulmonary inflammation, which I think is pretty interesting. 
I can't give you any Australian-specific data of its use other than it is being used in Australia outside of the context of clinical trials. Great. Thank you for sharing all of that information. It's nice to know and interesting to know how we're treating this, you know, similarly and, and differently across the globe. Another question that comes to mind is something that I, I saw recently in the lay press that was talking about Paxlovid rebound. And so patients who developed COVID-19 were treated with a five-day course of nermatrovir plus ritonavir and then had rebound symptoms once they stopped the agent. And just curious if you've seen that or if you had any recommendations for maybe how to proceed if someone has rebound COVID symptoms after they finish their course of antiviral. Yeah, this is an emerging observation. Apparently was not observed in the, in the clinical trials. I'm not entirely sure why that's the case. And as you say, the observation is that following completion of the five-day course of Paxlovid, there's been reports of recurrence of symptoms and recurrence of viral detection on average about three to five days after completing the course of Paxlovid. On the small numbers of cases that I have seen, the virus that rebounds is identical to the original strain. So there's no evidence that this is drug resistance. And, and one potential theory is that there is a longer, that the half-life of Paxlovid, that the, the half-life of, so Paxlovid is a protease inhibitor and it cleaves a polypeptide protein of SARS-CoV-2. And one um, hypothesis is that the half-life of the drug is not long enough to eliminate the protein that persists in the cell. We don't really, whether that means the best approach is to therefore prolong the treatment. I, some are advocating for that. I don't think there's enough evidence for that. I think this needs fairly detailed, prospective follow-up of people who receive Plaxivid, see how common this is, who's at highest risk of rebound, and then also to understand, you know, the pathogenesis and interested in the half-life of the drug. So I think it will take a little bit of time to sort out. I think most importantly, to emphasise that this was not drug resistance. It was its identical strain that appears after, to the identical strain to the initial inoculum. So I guess something to watch out for. I don't, haven't seen it this described in the natural history of COVID, haven't seen it described in studies of antibodies for COVID. And so it may be something that we need to understand much better in relation to the viral life cycle. It sounds like an interesting phenomenon for sure. And thank you for your thoughts on that. We had a question come in from an attendee who asks, is there a breakdown of what percent or percentage of patients come into a healthcare setting before seven days of symptom onset versus those who don't. So I guess, do, do we have a sense of how many people are coming in or accessing healthcare when they're still within that seven-day window where they can be treated with something like remdesivir or a monoclonal antibody? Yeah, that's a very important question because that gets at the absolute risk reduction rather than the relative risk reduction. So when we report the efficacy of these antiviral drugs and say that remdesivir reduces the chance of hospital admission by 80%. That's a relative risk reduction. So I think what I'm being asked here is what's the absolute risk of being admitted to hospital in that same period? The absolute risk of being admitted to hospital, if you receive 
remdesivir if you receive placebo. And each of the studies are slightly different because the population it studies of Paxlovid, the antibodies, remdesivir and molnupiravir are all slightly different because they did all look at high-risk populations, but the definition differs slightly in each of those studies. But overall, we're looking at a population with a 6%, 6 to 7% risk of hospitalisation. And therefore, the reduction reduces it down to 1%, for example. So I think that hopefully that's answered your question. So that group of people who have comorbidities, who have symptoms for less than seven days, and their risk of actual hospital admission is around 67%. And then we're looking at a relative risk of 80% on top of that. So you can see that if you were to study these antiviral agents in a low risk population, um, you know, in young people who have no comorbidities, you know, to, being able to show benefit would be far, far harder and you would need to treat many more people to get that benefit. But in the high risk population, the absolute risk is about six to seven percent. And again, another thing to keep in mind when you look at the studies is, you know, where they're being done. The criteria for hospitalisation in Brazil, for example, in the middle of a massive COVID outbreak will be quite different to what they were in Australia, where there was a different healthcare system and far fewer cases. So comparing across studies is, has got some challenges, but the absolute risk is about six to seven percent. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Another question came in from Yoshimi who asked, what kind of clinically significant drug interactions exist with remdesivir use? Are there any reported data on maybe drugs to avoid or, or drugs that need dose adjustments if you're administering remdesivir? Yes, I don't think there are very significant ones that come to mind. A good a handy tool, I should add, is the Liverpool Clinical Drug Interaction Tool. That is a fantastic drug-drug interaction, very easy, very user-friendly tool that's been set up by the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. It was initially set up for understanding and quickly checking HIV drug interactions. And they now have a COVID-19 drug-drug interaction calculator where you can enter your actual drug, such as remdesivir and any other drugs that the patients are on, and then look at the interactions. I don't know if one's offhand with remdesivir. You know, Paxlovid is obviously one that's a much, much greater concern. And if you want to reassure yourself, you can pop those drugs using for COVID, the drugs that the patients are on and look for any interaction. Great. And since we opened the door on Paxlovid and drug-drug interactions, is there anything different you want to say about that from either a resource standpoint or just maybe red flag drug-drug interactions with nermatrovir-ritonavir combination that you'd like to discuss? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. The drug-drug interactions are actually very, very significant and extensive for Paxlovid, and it's largely because of the use of ritonavir. So Paxlovid is a co-formulated antiviral with nermatrovir, which has the direct acting antiviral activity, and ritonavir, a low dose of ritonavir, which is a potent inhibitor of cytochrome P450. And that allows for favorable pharmacokinetics for the natural It dramatically boosts up that drug, allowing it to have enhanced antiviral activity. And the concept of ritonavir boosting was discovered with a range of other protease inhibitors used for HIV. Now, even at a low dose of ritonavir, 
the inhibition of cytochrome P450 is significant and therefore there will be interactions with classic drugs that are metabolized or increase uh, metabolized by the cytochrome P450 pathway or themselves inhibit um, cytochrome P450 or alter the cytochrome P450 pathway. So some of the classic drugs to watch out for are rifampicin, ketoconazole, a range of anesthetic agents, but many of the newer antihypertensive drugs and many are very long list of drugs, anti-epileptic drugs, do interact with cytochrome P450, either inhibit it, enhance it, or are substrates for it. So you do need to go and check those drug-drug interactions. Right, and I think that's a great reminder too, thinking that these are high-risk patients that are likely to perhaps be on some of those medications and then qualify for use of Paxlovid should they become COVID positive, that a drug-drug interaction check would be a great first step before deciding that that's what's to be prescribed. And we did get a yeah. question from Ranga Swami who asked, and, and this is maybe more specific to the U.S., about pharmacies and the test and treat program. So in the United States, there's been this push for pharmacists and pharmacies to have the ability to test and then treat with antivirals. And I don't know if that's available in Australia or if you're aware of, you know, if that's been successful or, or how that's been going. Yeah, I can't comment on that because I'm not based in the US. I think it's a really interesting and innovative way to get antivirals out to people that need them and to get because you've got this limited time window. I don't know how that has rolled out in the US. In Australia, initially, administration of these agents, even the oral antivirals was all hospital-based. They've recently now become available in the community. But I think innovative programs like this should be explored. And, you know, an interesting parallel is PrEP. So pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV is, you know, hospital administration of PrEP is really not the best platform if you want to get the drug out to lots of people who are otherwise well. In Australia, we did, led by um, Edwina Wright, a program looking at pharmacy-administered PrEP as an example, and it was really very effective for people at risk of HIV to access PrEP. So I think these sorts of programs that are non-hospital-based outside of the usual places for prescription of, of drugs that can be done with speed are really worth exploring, though there are complexities here, especially given the fact that the people that will be being treated are, are often quite complicated because of the presence of comorbidities and particularly this issue of drug-drug interactions. That makes a lot of sense to look at you know, other public health efforts and, and how have those been successfully used and, and maybe transfer some of that knowledge over to doing the same for our, our COVID therapeutics. Now, to switch gears a little bit, I'll ask you a question about vaccines. So we've heard that there are some different vaccine manufacturers that are working on variant-specific vaccines, such as an Omicron-specific vaccine. Do you think that that's going to be the wave of the future for COVID vaccines, or do you think targeting kind of a more holistic uh, approach to COVID vaccines is where, where we'll see things go? Omicron-specific mRNA vaccines are being evaluated. They're currently in clinical trial, and the results from those trials have not yet been reported. There have been reports of Omicron-specific vaccination in animal models both mouse and non-human primate animal models. And overall, those studies seem to suggest that an Omicron-specific vaccine doesn't add a lot more than a vaccine designed against the original Wuhan or ancestral strain. 
but we're still waiting to see the results of the human clinical trials. What we are seeing, though, is that additional doses do reduce the risk of, you know, third and then fourth doses, reduce the risk of infection, and more importantly, do reduce the risk of hospitalisation. And the best data on that certainly comes from Israel, where a very large program of fourth doses given to people at higher risk, 60 years and over, really showed that there was benefit um, from that fourth dose in reducing hospitalisation, less impact on reducing infection, but in the end, what we want is reduced hospitalisation. And I recently had the opportunity to see some of that Israeli data, um, which was Omicron specific. And again, after the third dose gave you, we're just talking about hospitalisation and severe disease, the third dose greatly reduced the chance of hospitalisation by about tenfold. And then you got a further fivefold reduction after the fourth dose. So that seems that repeated dosing with the original strain greatly enhances the breadth of your immunity and ability to protect against severe disease. I think we just don't have a really good understanding of which component is key there in protecting against severe disease, whether this is all related to antibodies or whether it's T cells or another arm of the immune system that we haven't yet been able to quantify accurately at scale. Sure, and that makes a lot of sense. And, and thanks for commenting on those, those extra doses. In the same vein of vaccines, we received another question this time from John, who asks, is there any evidence of adverse stimulation of inflammation by administration of a COVID vaccine? Well, we have seen that. You know, all vaccines have adverse events. And now that vaccines have been given to billions and billions of people, we have a very, very good understanding of the adverse events from a range of the uh, vaccines. Many of them are indeed of, of inflammatory nature, and we need to understand more about how that happens. And of course, the most important one being myocarditis and pericarditis in younger men with the mRNA vaccines, it seems to be dose dependent, but is of lower incidence in at least a third dose. And I can't comment on fourth dosing, and most fourth dosing has been given in the elderly. So that's a very good example of an inflammatory response, of severe inflammatory response. And all of the vaccines do that are available in most of our countries, whether it's a viral vector vaccine, Janssen or previously AstraZeneca, or the mRNA vaccines, or even the protein vaccines with Novavax, do all, are all immunogenic, meaning that you do have non-specific fever and myalgia and discomfort perhaps for the first 24 hours. And they're probably more immunogenic than the, many of the other childhood vaccines we use currently or even the influenza vaccine. So hopefully, you know, the vaccine field, you know, we've done spectacularly well with getting vaccines out so quickly with COVID, but there's still a lot of work being done and I'm sure we're going to see improved vaccines that are less immunogenic, even for the reversible inflammatory symptoms, hopefully reduce the chance also of, of severe adverse events such as myocarditis and pericarditis in the future vaccines. Thank you very much to Professor Lewin and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full COVID-19 Resource Center on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.